Hey everyone, welcome to the 46th episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. On today's episode, we bring back Joel Myers one last time to discuss this year's U.S. Open. We discuss how Coco Goff finally made her Grand Slam breakthrough, the technique of the Ben Shelton serve, and what you can learn from watching professional doubles. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Joel, welcome back to the pod. Hey, Jonathan, how you going? Doing great, man. Uh, appreciate making time one last time for the U.S. Open. It was an awesome tournament and would love to start with Coco, who obviously had a breakthrough event, gets her first slam. And I'm curious from your standpoint, what you've seen, what has changed in her game this summer that she dominated compared to like the first half of the year? I mean, I, I probably believe that it's more the things that you can't measure in terms of like the belief and the fact that her maybe game plan B and C is good enough to get over the line. I think there's a lot of times that you probably force your game plan A. I think that maybe is what happened uh, with Sabalenka against her in the final. I almost feel like Sabalenka was pressing too much and Coco made her play a game that she wasn't really prepared to play. So I, I think it probably has a lot more to do with how she's approaching it from the mental side, the side that we can't really measure. But the the strategy of that final was uh, was really interesting, where she just sort of brought her brought her opponent's level down, which is I think a really good lesson for players out there that you don't always have to focus on yourself. On paper, Sabalenka is definitely the, the the favorite, but you know the way that Coco played, you know, really physical game making the court feel a lot smaller for Sabalenka and the pressure just was too much. It's interesting. I posted a video and I was talking about Coco and I'm like, okay, I, I have no idea where you think her forehand ranks in the world, but it's certainly not a top 10 forehand. You would take 10, 10 other forehands before yeah, you take I would hers. Agree. And she's got a great backhand, but it might not be the single best backhand and she volleys all right, but it's probably not the best net game you've ever seen. Her serve is good. I don't know that it's the best serve on tour. So Agreed. she doesn't have anything in her shots that you would go, wow, oh my God, she's far and away the best ball striker or whatever. And yet she is clearly right now the most dominant player over the last two months. And I said, oh, well, she moves well. Obviously she moves great. That's what she does the best out of anyone. She moves great. But then her mentality has been incredible. And people took that as a slight, oh, yeah, you're, no. you're saying she can't hit the ball. And I'm like, no, I'm saying she's incredible but she's doing things that maybe require less talent. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, it's a talent in itself. The, she is absolutely an elite mover and she's managing her, her game so well. I think that's what really all players need to do every time they step out there is, is they have to manage their game. Maybe you have big weapons and they're not firing. What's game plan B or C? But yeah, she has, you know, the forehand grip and the, the backswing. And I think uh, Gilbert has addressed that. He said he wasn't going to change anything when he started working with her, which obviously was smart because you know, big matches and big money's on the line. It's hard, to, really hard to make those changes. You're, you're absolutely right. I think there's nothing she does that's absolutely outstanding, but then there's also a huge amount of room for improvement, which is scary. You know, if she's doing this with maybe suboptimal technique, and obviously I think we both know technique bleeds into strategy. You know, what you can do, strategically a lot of times depends on your technique and so things will improve that way for her 
she, there was a moment in the final i think it was the third set and I, I i meant to write it down it was a it was either she was up 1-0 but maybe the second game was kind of close and sabalenka ran her side to side to side and ended up hitting a winner on like the eighth ball and they zoomed in on coco and she was pumping her fist and the look on her face i was like oh this is over like she's she's winning for sure like she lost the point but but she knows she's winning for sure and I don't know. I just every coach who comes on here, I'm always looking for the technical secret or whatever. And they're like yeah. mentality, mentality, yeah. mentality. Yeah. And I think people hear it and then they go home and they go forehand grip, forehand technique, volley technique. And it's like I just want to drill in how important that was because Sabalenka is for sure the better ball striker. And yet she was yep. clearly the second best player on that court. Yeah. And I, I thought <clears throat> Sabalenka had a really tough time getting the right ball to strike. I mean, Goff didn't give her the ball that she liked. I think in the third set, Sabalenka's first serve percentage dropped to 43%. And when you are relying on sort of first strike and initiating offense early, you're going to be pressing if you're playing off your second serve because, as you know, you're, a lot of times you're playing neutral, you're playing defense off a second serve. So it's just a different ball game. And Coco didn't give her the chance to play the game she wanted to play. And, you know, Sabalenka probably didn't accept it, still pressed and made a ton of errors, especially on her forehand. So what should you do? I was trying to explain this to my wife watching the match. I'm like, well, Coco's making more balls. She gets to more balls. This is going to be tough sledding for Sabalenka. What do you do if you're playing someone and it's pretty evident that they're more consistent than you? <laughs> they're making more balls. That's a really tough spot to be in. But what should you do when you find yourself in that situation? Yeah, I think there's you have to be patiently aggressive. I think you definitely can't bleed errors and just keep hammering, you know, looking for that the first ball that maybe isn't there. I think you can change the technique from the start, of the, the, sorry, change the strategy from the start of the point. Obviously, uh, serve and volley, is, I'm a big fan of that. I'm sure you are as well, just to mix it up and give the opponent a different look so they're not just hitting middle all the time. Bring the opponent into the net, make the points a little bit choppier maybe, mix things up. But you got a player that's, you know, in golf that is just wet, ready to grind you down with movement and depth and basically make you hit to targets that don't exist. She, there was just, it felt like there was not a point where Sabalenka could find that she could get the ball past golf. So, you know, I think there's lots of different ways you can mix it up. The height of the ball, the contact point for the opponent. If golf likes, likes the ball at waist high, don't give her that ball there. Try and find a shorter ball. I mean, there's a lot of different ways. And I think, um, a lot of these really top players, um, and Anik, Paul Anikon's talked about this before, when he's worked with some of these really top players, they're so good at what they do that they get stubborn in what they think they can win. You know, it wins. I'm, I'm number two in the world. I, I should be able to do this. I should be able to influence this player with this shot, and maybe it's not working on the day, and some players will change, and some players won't. And I think that's it can, can come down to being too stubborn. I know when we go to talk about the men's final, I know what we're going to be talking about there. So, um, of course, in Medvedev's call position. Right. So my favorite match was the Medvedev-Alcaraz match. Absolutely, and, yeah. And, and Medvedev, I thought, had a similar look in his eye that I saw in Coco in the finals where it was just all business. Like, he played yeah. this point, he'd run side to side, he wasn't breathing heavy. If he hit a winner, it just looked like next point. Let's go. Let, let, let's hurry up here. And I and I thought the same thing. I was like, man, he's so consistent, and he doesn't look like he's giving anything away mentally. What did you see out of Medvedev in this tournament? 
in that in the semi final, he was serving just like he was when he won the tournament a couple of years ago. It was the rhythm that he serves at when he's in the zone on serve. It's like bounce, 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 go, bounce, 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 go. It's almost like automatic. He's almost a serve robot, and he hits his spots you know, deep in the corners, consistent. It's just like. It's barrage of first serves, and you watch him play on on serves, and it's in such contrast to how he plays on the return. The, the big first serve, and he's inside the baseline with his first ball. Usually, if the players are struggling to get that serve back, you know it's, it's sitting up above the net, and he's slapping a flatter, a flatter strike of ball, which skids on these faster surfaces, and it makes it even harder to get that next ball deep and to push him back. And then on the return side, you know he's standing way behind the baseline. Um, and then just making as many returns in and, and using his speed to chase down that third ball of the rally over and over and over again. And it's, uh, he makes it really tough. It's really contrasting. He makes his service games real short and makes your, op- uh, your opponent's uh, service games really long. So what did you see out of him then in the final, the contrasting styles? And you mentioned being a little stubborn, but what was the difference in the match with Djokovic? Well, the, you know, it's funny that the, all three of their finals have gone straight sets. You know, the way they play, you would never expect um, any of these matches to be straight sets, really. So, I mean, the first set wasn't much to talk about. He just, you know, didn't play very well. And then the second set was very tight. The points were super physical. I mean, you saw Djokovic bent over. And then as Djokovic got a little more tired, uh, he went to the serve and volley, which is just a great tactic against Medvedev. You've seen it when Alcraz has executed that in the past because of how far back he is and how hard it is for him to cover that shorter volley when Novak comes forward. And he had that serving wide uh, in the juice court. And that's one of his you know, best serves, that slice serve wide in the juice court. So he got to use his best serve to serve volley, gave himself time to, came in, to come in, took away the, the big deep targets. And then Medvedev's on the run and no, Djokovic is on the net if he does get there. Most of the time, you don't have to play a special volley because there's just so much court open. So I thought that was that was a, obviously you know it's it's a strategy that it should work every time against the, well most of the time against players that play so far back. He talked about that in the press conference. He said he thinks he was too stubborn and that he probably should have switched, but he said he was trying to change the heights and the directions of the return and not his core positioning. So I think that might have been an argument that he had with him and his coach. Um, you know, in the second, I think it must be pretty frustrating for the coach to sit there and be like, you know, you have to make a change here because you can't lose that second set. Right. Um, but yeah, it, you, it, that's just, it's just a tool that everyone should have. It's just a great way to, to shorten the point, get them thinking about a different return target and position. You've got to switch positions in that, at that point, I felt like. Ben Shelton made a great run. Uh, really his first great tournament since Australia. He had like one of the weirdest years, but... What do you see out of his game? What What do you like in his game that helped him have a couple of good majors this year? And then kind of what do you see in his game that might help him, you know, make it into the top 10 moving forward? Yeah, I mean, the serve is obviously elite. <clears throat> I just really like how he's able to mix up, you know, the, t- the spot serving and then the massive bombs. And, you know, he doesn't make a ton of the massive bombs, but it's enough to just frighten you off the baseline, I guess. You know, you you want to play back a little bit because you need to deal with that pace, you need to respect the pace. And then he's got those swinging lefty slice serves that do so much damage. But the the thing that he can really work on, I think it's obvious, is that return of serve, you know. And it's uh, he went through a stretch this year where he was really struggling on returns. And I think he just did a lot 
less on the return. Maybe this tournament just made a lot more in and gave himself a, a chance to get into the point. And, you know, at, at a higher level, that's probably not enough to get it done if you're just, you know, pushing the ball back in the court. Um, I actually think that's why some of those really big servers like Isner and Apelka struggle on return. I don't think necessarily that they can't make the return. I think that their movement for the next ball, the rally, is nowhere near as good as some of the more elite movers. So they almost have to take more risk on the return so they miss more. That's my opinion on that. I don't know how they feel. But um, yeah, Shelton's got a huge game. I mean, obviously he can take the, the racket out of your hand and there's not a lot of guys that can do that. You know, back in the, in the 90s, there was quite a few players who could just take the racket out of your hand on their serve, but they just weren't elite returners. You know, nowadays you've got the, the best players are very good servers. They, they do very well on their serve, but they also extend and put pressure on the opponent's serve every game. And that's the, the real, I guess, the hallmark of a top player these days is like how often can you pressure your opponent's serve? I know I'm oversimplifying this, but it's just, you know, people usually hitting fast is really fun. So I totally understand that, that side of it. But if you just go very simply, you go, well, who, who serves bigger? you know, Shelton or Djokovic. Okay, well, that, that one's easy. We know Shelton's got more gas in the tank, but you say, who's a better server? That one actually gets, that's a closer conversation for sure because Novak hits his spots and, and picks his poison. And then you go, well, who hits the ground strokes faster? Shelton's fastest ground stroke is for sure faster, but then you say, who's the better player? I didn't see anyone picking Shelton to win a set. So I hit faster than you. I'm clearly more explosive than you, but nobody thinks I'm better than you. And so there's, that consistency, that obviously Novak experience, but that stuff has so much more weight, but I think people still just get kind of obsessed with that speed. Yeah, first serve speed doesn't have a high correlation in uh, in terms of who's going to win the match. Um, second serve win percentage has a much higher correlation of, of who's going to win the match. So obviously, um, if you're able to impose on your against your opponent's second serve, or are you able to at least neutralize on your second serve? But Novak's serve is so underrated, like in terms of hitting spots when he needs a huge serve, he's unbelievable at that. You know, down a break point, he's gonna make a first serve he's to a great location. And even how he uses his second serve, how he uses it a little bit more, sometimes there's a faster slice serve, put a bit more pace on it, um, goes against the grain when a player's expecting maybe the backhand body, he swings it out. So he can bait some errors out of players that way as well. But he, he's a very smart player. The serve is, when underwent a huge reconstruction, I think it was in 2010. Um, but that's the other thing is when you look at all these players, Novak, um, Rafa, even Federer when they were younger, you look at their technique and you look at how it's changed. And I think so many players, they just they have a, they have a very good forehand for the level that they're at but they maybe don't press to make it better. Is there something that they can get extra out of it? Is there an area of inefficiency that they can clean up and make that even better under pressure um, or under extra pace of their opponent's ball? And Djokovic and Nadal have made big changes over the course of their careers that have made their their serves and their forehands better. I mean, looking at the evolution of Nadal's forehand, like last week I was going through um, how his forehand has changed over the years. And it's absolutely wild. At some points, you can't even recognize it. Some of the experiments that he was doing with his forehand when he lost to Soderling, and that was the worst forehand that Nadal had. It was unbelievable. He had a better forehand in like 2004 uh, before that. But yeah, it, it's interesting seeing those guys change things. I think um, 
some of the things, you know, and that's where maybe Coco will change over time to make some improvements um, and, and make it a little bit easier for her, make her technique more efficient so she can be better at bigger moments when there's more pressure. Is there one or two things that you like technically in the Shelton serve that amateurs can kind of try to copy, emulate, put into their, their service motion? I mean, his serve is so athletic. I mean, there's, there's so much upper body coil that goes into that. There's so much back leg loading that goes into that. And for as low as his ball toss is, and you know that's a, a good thing. I'm not saying that is a bad thing. A low ball toss doesn't mean a low contact point, you know. Um, but as as low as that ball toss is, the speed at which he gets down and up is so quick. It's so explosive, you know. You look at it, how he comes in and out of that drive. So I think if there's something that you're probably looking at, you know, and many players have a, a, a ball toss that's probably too high. I was at the San Diego Open this week. I saw a few that were pretty high. And the ball toss goes up and the player goes down into a knee bend and they're almost holding a static squat, you know, for a second waiting for that ball to come down. And you've got to think about being, you want to be a little more explosive. When you lower that toss, you've got to come in and out of that leg drive a lot faster. So you think about like a, an NBA player going up for a two-handed dunk, they're going to come in and out of their leg drive really quickly. The knee flexion is not 90 degrees. You know, it's, it's very, very minimal, but it's very quick. And so... When you look at a, a Ben Shelton, obviously he's an unbelievable athlete and he's super explosive, but the the speed at which he gets that leg drive off and that serve off is is very impressive. I don't think you can necessarily imitate the amount of torque he puts on his body, um, but you can def- certainly take things away like the, the ball toss height, getting in and out of your legs quickly and in tossing forward. You know He's a hugely aggressive server and the ball toss is going to be inside the baseline. I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on this. You, you might roast me on the podcast and I promise I won't delete this <laughs> if, if you do. Um, so I was at the open for a couple days, the Friday and Saturday in the middle. And so on the outside courts, it was tons of doubles, all these guys I grew up playing with. So I'm like, Oh, I want to go watch them play. And everybody, every single player, man, woman, they're closing the net tight when their partner is serving, right? They're moving forward. Some, sometimes they move forward and cut to the middle. Sometimes they just move forward but they're moving forward. And so I posted a video and uh, showed it and I love it. I always get the comments, but the, a lot of three, five, four O's, Oh, you know, you're just going to get roasted in the alley. And oh yeah, it, yeah, you're going to get roasted in the alley. And you know, the other one is that my partner doesn't serve big enough. And my take was, or is a pro server for sure. They're setting up their partner, but there's also a pro returner. I saw a lot of really good pro returns and when you're a 3-5 server, yes, your serve is kind of slow, but I've seen the 3-5 return, and it's not exactly the fastest thing I've ever seen. So I feel I feel like it's kind of apples to apples. Like, it's the same thing. Yes, the pro serves are good, but the pro returners actually have more options. And so my advice is you can still get close to the net, and a lot of people think it's not an option. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, actually, it's that is hilarious because... The- when I first started like doing research and I found Craig O'Shaughnessy's rally length data and I was like, Oh, this is fascinating. And it was all pro rally length data. This was 2015. So this is a long time ago now. And he would get the same questions. Like, does, is this transferable to my USTA ladies match? And when they went and got the USTA data, the numbers are very similar because of the point that you made. Yes, the serves at the pro level and the returns at the pro level are stronger, but the serves and returns at the recreation level 
are much, much weaker. It's almost a parallel and the numbers come out very similar. So even if your partner has a weaker serve and they serve to the body of that weaker returner, they're going to have a really tough time going down the line to generate any angle on that ball. So it's totally valid to close the net. Plus every ball has to cross the net in doubles, right? It has to come over the net. And most of them are going over the net through the middle. So the closer you can get to the net, to the crossing point of that ball over the net, the easier it makes for you to, to get the poach. And when you are on top of the net, you can target that opposing, opposing net player right down at the feet. You can get the ball straight down at their feet. You can go at them. Um, so it, there's a lot of lot of reasons why that's very valid. I, I feel the same boat because I get, I get the same uh, comments all the time or you know, this, this team loves me every time and they hit the lob on the line. I'm like, well, nobody can lob over your head and put it on the line every time, but they have the same thing. And why are we, why are we closing the net? Why are we closing the net? Well, if you don't, you've got two players covering the lob and you've got nobody covering the, the cross court ground stroke. So the player that's back should be covering the lob. Um, and the, the player that's in front should be hunting that ball. It's, it is, it is really funny. You know, when you, when you put it into those terms. I feel like there should be a sarcastic font when you're making a comment on a on an Instagram post too, because one, I forget who it was, but one person said, "Oh, well, I can hit the alley every time," and oh, yeah. so the alley is four and a half feet wide. And I, I said, "Wow, that's like that's great because you then you probably never have missed a return because the doubles court is thirty six feet wide, right? Yeah. So that's awesome. Like I, I I miss a lot of returns. I'm happy for you. And the the thing is, is you know, if you give them a cross court window. It might be whatever, 15 to 20 foot target. If you stand a little more in the middle, you might give them like a four or five foot target down the line and then maybe a 15 foot target or 16 foot target cross court, but it's two smaller targets instead of one massive target. And I think everybody deep down would really prefer to hit to one huge target than two smaller ones. Absolutely. And the the fact that like every now and then with my clinics, my doubles clinics, I'll, I'll have... Just to make a point, I'll have two lines down the other end and I'll just feed them mid-court floaters and I'll say, look, first person to hit five balls down the alley wins the game. There's no pressure. There's no net player. I'm giving an absolute cherry and it takes a long time. And then after it, I was like, why are we going so much down the line in, in singles? You know, It's a much tougher ball. There's a net player there. And then why are we covering that as a net player? If you guys have that much trouble hitting it off this ball that I'm giving you in this environment where there is no pressure, why are we looking to cover that all the time? You know, so I try and have them put themselves in a spot where they can cover potentially half the alley and that's about it. Give the other half away. If anybody can hit down half the alley, good luck. You know, especially at USTA level, if you're hitting down half the alley, you've probably aimed cross court and hit it late, let's be honest. You know, he probably hit a late ball and then the net player goes, oh man, that's a great forehand. And they haven't recognized that ball's come late off the strings and just accidentally sucked one down the line. So yeah, it's just, it's percentages. And over time you'll play better tennis. You win more matches playing the percentages more often. But, you know, obviously there are balls. If the players, if your opponent uh, at the baseline has a very comfortable, easy shot, there's balls that you'll tend to watch your line more. That's the other thing that comes into play. I think the biggest argument in doubles that I hear about is two players that play and they don't really know each other and the net player gets beaten down the line and the, the baseline player says to their partner at the net, hey, watch the alley. And I always think, well, that's funny because number one, that my opponent shouldn't be able to go down my alley regularly if you're hitting anything of decent quality. And then number two, the net player's got to sort of read the baseline or a little bit 
and decide do they have a ball they could possibly go down the alley on. So it's still a team problem. Getting beaten down the down the line in doubles is still a team problem. Right. And as with anything, any advice that you would give or I would give, it, it my, my I always start and I say it depends. So I'll never forget I played a match against this kid at Georgia Tech and he did he hit every single return in the pro set down the line. And so the first half I was in the middle and he beat me a couple times. He stretched me. And then the second half of the match, I, I literally one time had my left foot in the doubles alley when my partner was serving and he still hit right at me. And I was like, oh, okay. Like th- this is a unique match. Now I'm going to literally cover my alley. This is all yes. the guy's going to do. And if you play someone and they actually only lob, of course, then don't run six inches from the net. I, I would never advise that. But I think it usually happens one time you get beat in the alley or you get lobbed twice in a game and somehow in your brain that is every time. And then you start missing the other things. So it just always depends on the opponent, but it's like general advice that works most of the time, like you said, playing the percentages. Yeah, I mean, you know, general people, they remember it when you've been hit down the line for a winner. You remember that. It's a jarring memory. So you immediately, of course, you want to watch the line, but... Um, you keep a general strategy in, in mind of what is generally high percentage play, and then you adapt to that as you need to, which Daniil Medvedev probably should have done in the second set, returning so far back. He probably should have made a made a change, but you know he's probably like, ah, most of the time Novak's not going to serve in volley. He's not a serving volley, so I'll stay back. I will have some success, and Novak served a lot more in that second set. Part, parting shot here. What would your, aside from maybe closing the net or covering the middle a little bit more, what can a 3-5 or 4-0 doubles player copy from the pros? Consider return angle. And return angle being any time you hit a ball, let's say through the middle of the court, that it's probably going to come back through the middle of the court. A serve to the body is probably not going to have a lot of angle come back. Um, a serve to the right-handers backhand up the deuce T is probably not going to go to the alley. It's probably going to go on the singles court. And a lot of players don't consider return angle in doubles. And as you know, very good doubles players at a higher level, they're always considering return angle. You're not going to serve wide as often because of the return angle from that player. You're not going to open up an angle in a cross-court rally for the opponent to potentially go down the line on you. So um, high-level players are very aware of return angle. Um, and I guess... Lower level players, maybe three five, not so concerned with return angle. You know, if, if you're in a lob rally cross court, lobbing down the middle can be a great strategy. Net player's not going to get it. Um, ball's probably going to come back to the middle. Good luck trying to take a, a big moon ball from behind the baseline to the alley if it's down the center. So that can be a, a really valid strategy that I think that people do accidentally sometimes and don't realize that they could do it intentionally. Joel, I put you to work this year. Four of these recaps, um, and this is, you know, whatever. It's seven in the morning, your time, before you're running a tournament. Can't thank you enough. Um, I'm going to give you a couple months break here, and then and then maybe, you know, your, your home slam, the Aussie, we can we can bring you back on. But thanks so much for your insight. Uh, thanks. This year was really fun. I enjoyed talking to you, Jonathan. You're, uh, you're a great coach, and uh, you've got excellent insight, man. It's really good to talk to you. All right, I want to thank Joel for coming on one last time this year. Lots of great stuff as always. Talking about Coco, I really want you all to focus on your movement and your mindset. Compete for every point, stay present, and choose to believe in yourself even when things look difficult. And then for all your fall doubles leagues coming up, try to get out of your comfort zone and close the net a little more than you usually do. 
Look to cover the middle a little more than you usually do and see if you can dominate your league matches at the net. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved at tennis without even hitting a ball.